Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, along with producer Benny Mathers. We have for you today two interviews, Howard S. Wright III and Sam Kaplan. Sam is director of the Center for Excellence for Global Health and Supply Chain Management. Sam will be coming up on the show in about 20 minutes. But first, I spoke with Howard S. Wright. We talked about legislation that has been introduced by Seattle City Councilwoman Lisa Herbold, and that would excuse suspects in Seattle from most misdemeanor crimes that are linked to poverty or mental illness. Howard is president of the Seattle Hospitality Group. He was co-chair of an effort that eventually led to Seattle becoming the first city in the United States to phase in a minimum wage increase to $15 per hour. Howard went to Washington State University, where he majored in Latin American studies. He's also been to Latin America every year since. I'd like to talk to him about that sometime. He was a commercial pilot for 20 years, primarily with Delta Airlines. Now, his passion was to run his own business, so he came back to Seattle in 1993. So, Howard, welcome. I'd like to just do a quick synopsis of the major points that you made in the Puget Sound Business Journal. And that is a proposal from Lisa Herbold, the city councilwoman from West Seattle, which is where I live. And she has something called the Affirmative Defense, and she introduced it last year. And I'll summarize what that is, and I'm taking this from your column. It's also referred to as the Poverty Defense, and this would be legislation that would excuse suspects from most misdemeanor crimes if the unlawful action can be linked to poverty or mental illness, if the person who committed the crime did so to meet a basic need, and if the item is under $750. Is there something I missed in there? No. No, you've summarized it accurately. Okay, so what is your concern? Uh, my concern is that as compassionate as the council member uh, may feel she is being, that this is addressing an outcome or a result of someone's condition, and we need to address the condition that they're in. I, I'm, I'm not addressing the obvious points about this, that you're basically letting people skirt the law. Laws exist for a reason, and they, they should be enforced, and people should be held accountable. But I think that if she would come up with some proposal to address addiction services and mental health treatment, I'd be fully behind that and uh, a strong supporter of it. That's what it's going to take to solve our homelessness issue, and, uh, and that's what's going to help lift people out of poverty. I'm a member of the Seattle Rotary Club, and uh, I heard Superior Court Judge Jim Rogers address this issue on homelessness and things, and it really made an impression on me and kind of goes along with what you're saying, is that what he says, and it's so true, that homelessness is an addiction problem. It's either alcohol, and as you point out, mental illness, maybe drugs, and one of the things that he suggested is that when you get into a situation like this, you're arrested, um, you got a choice. You can go to jail or you can go get treatment. I mean, I, I do believe that that's, those are what the options should be. Until we're ready to face this and to address this, we're going to continue to have the problem that we have. It started out 40 years ago when Congress uh, decided to send funding and um, support down to the regional and state levels in the 80s. And if you look at who are the offspring of the 80s, it's 40-year-olds who are on the street now. And our state, until two years ago, our state ranked 48 
in spending on mental health services and addiction services. So until we as a country are ready to address this, we're going to continue to have this problem. And we have addressed huge, hairy challenges before. We've addressed the crack epidemic. We've addressed the AIDS uh, era. Uh, and, of course, AIDS still exists, but we have HIV treatment services, and there's been a great deal of money spent on research and drugs. We've addressed many other issues and, and, and have mostly solved them. And until we do that in this issue, we're going to, going to continue to have this problem. We've discussed homelessness and what is being done about that. And you've been a leader in that and trying to find housing for a lot of the homeless people. How is that coming along? The county council passed a one-tenth of one percent tax several weeks ago that is earmarked for permanent supportive housing to house the chronically homeless. And permanent supportive housing, or PSH, is long-term housing. It's not temporary shelters. It's long-term housing. It's a fancy term for long-term housing with services. And when I say services, we're talking about mental health and addiction services, addiction treatment services. And so that is a good start. It's a 5 to $6 billion problem or opportunity or challenge for our region. And it's, it, it is a part of a grander uh, solution. But uh, as I said earlier, that we also have to treat that what is the cause of people being on the street? And it is mental health illnesses and drugs and alcohol. I'm not saying that these people should freeze to death uh, at night. I'm not saying, well, they chose to go that way. Those are complicated stories beyond which some of us don't have the ability to grasp what happened. I just think that it exists. You need to face it and deal with it, treat it, and help people get back on their feet in a both a, a firm and compassionate way. When I hear things like what uh, Councilwoman uh, Herbolt is doing, and, and I, you even addressed it in your column, you mentioned a little bit earlier, you're, you're compassionate. You're trying to do the right thing, basically, but this is not it. And I always feel that when I see people, homelessness out in the streets and walking about and letting this continue, just letting them like that is not compassionate at all. And you're not really doing things for them by letting this problem continue to exist and not really try to help find solutions and identifying things that you have and your homelessness committees have done rather than trying to keep this thing going down the road. I agree with you. I, I'm not sure I have anything more to say. <laughs> I, I agree with you. So we have a city council. I'm not going to throw stones at the city council. But we have, a, we have a city council that is made up. It's an interesting makeup right now. We have two or three members who are not very effective. We have a couple of uh, city council members who are effective at what they're doing because the well-organized uh, labor movement has, has embedded themselves in those offices and they're writing legislation. Exhibit A is the hazardous pay for grocery workers that passed last week. And that was completely written uh, by others for Teresa Mosqueda to pass. And then there are a couple of poisonous uh, people on the council who get a lot of attention. Whoever the next mayor is or whoever are the next mayoral candidates, the question is, in my mind, what skills do you or experience do you have in managing and leading a $5 billion enterprise? That's question number one. I don't, I, I, I'm not saying that you have to come out of corporate America, not at all. But you do have to have experience, whether you're leading an NGO or leading a not-for-profit organization. You do have to have this experience. You have to make tough decisions. You have to hold people accountable. 
you have to deliver what, on your promises and you have to deliver services. You know, what skills do these candidates have in selecting the next uh, CEO of Seattle City Light? That's my first question. And then my second question is, do you have experience in making a payroll? It can be for a large not-for-profit. It can be for a large for-profit company. But if you don't understand the implications of legislation and taxes that you're passing, I don't think that you can grasp what the impact is on employers, be they for-profit or not-for-profit employers. Do you see any of those candidates out there? None have identified themselves uh, for me to be able to single out. There's, there's quite a pool out there, uh, and I'm, I'm waiting to see what the final shakeout uh, looks like. So the answer, that's a long answer to your short question. No, I don't, but it's not because they're not qualified. It's because they're not identified. Right, and there's still time to go. I guess I may yes, be looking back, but you know, I, I go back to Wes Ullman. That's where I start my consciousness in Seattle politics, and then we go forward to all the mirrors we've had uh-huh. since. Do you sense that we're kind of in a really, with the pandemic and all that's hit Seattle, that we're in really an emergency time right now, that the next mayor that we get needs to have the qualities that you're talking about. And if we don't do that, we're just going to go down this road that is not going to inspire confidence and is not going to really do what Seattle needs to have done now. Or am I just being uh, I don't exaggerating? I don't, ar- I don't argue with that. I, I cannot argue with that uh, observation. It certainly seems to be true. Yes, I'm just so interested in this race and I feel it. So I want to be involved in more than I've ever have before. <laughs> So, because uh, I love the city of Seattle. I mean, gosh, I mean, we go through not getting on a tangent here, but there was no pro sports in Seattle when I was growing up, when you were growing up. And to see this magnificent city unfold and all the things that were born out of this, I'm not sure the current city council and a lot of people in positions of power appreciate how much Seattle has grown in the last 50-some-odd years. And I don't want to be the gramps on the front lawn going, remember this, you know, this is the way it was. It's not about that. You know, it's really about appreciating that history that brought us to the point where we have $5 billion to divide up because of the Amazons, because of this. And I get so tired of people vilifying people like that. Certainly Amazon, they made billions. Maybe they could contribute more. But why don't we have Amazon Day in Seattle and appreciate them some, what they've done to this city? Because they've done some incredible things. I agree. I agree. And instead, many vilify them. And I don't understand that. I also, though, think that there's an opportunity for the business community to organize and be as well organized as the far left, which has done an outstanding job in executing their ground game. And, uh, and, and, and where we, the business community, uh, have been, I don't quite understand. I, I, it, there are so many places in the country, let alone the world, who would love to be in our shoes, would love to have the geography that we have, the climate that we have, and the employment base that we have. Absolutely. And um, I don't think that we recognize that or exalt that nearly enough, if at all. Do you think the districts electing city council members by districts has hurt in that effort? I do. I do. Uh, there was one person who ran a grassroots movement to turn us into districts. I, I don't know her uh, personally. I understand that her motivation was that she thought that all nine at-large seats 
didn't make sense because she thought it was too expensive and too much of a financial burden for a candidate to have to run a campaign that covered the entire city, the, the whole footprint of the city. And so she thought it would be more efficient and it would be more neighborhood accountable. And I believe that it has backfired. It has backfired terribly. And I didn't support it before. I have to say that I didn't do anything about it before. So full full transparency, full confession there. I learned about it late before it passed. I thought about a campaign against it, but I wasn't sure that anybody that I could convince people that this was a bad idea. And a lot of people also were tired of their neighborhood. They didn't have any one person to call to say, hey, fix my potholes, put in a crosswalk, you know, other things like that. Um, and I think they thought that this would give them more direct access to the council member of this new district that they're in. And my fear, not to use racial stereotypes, but my fear is that we were going to turn into a city as other cities in the Midwest, and that is, is that you're going to have your white candidate, you're going to have your candidate of color, you're going to have your Asian candidate, you're going to have your labor candidate. And I didn't want to see these fiefdoms or silos, if you will, develop. And unfortunately, we do have no accountability now, and people are not responsible for the whole city. What's interesting to me, you talk about how we neither one of us want to be gramps on the front lawn. I agree with that. I think that one of the things that's happened here is of the seven uh, district positions and two out large, they appear to be uh, not in touch with who their uh, constituents are. And I know that I write and I call, not all the time, and I've left messages for further conversation, and I don't get a call back. Uh, I don't get any response. One council member responds to me on an average of once a year, and I don't even live in her district. But other than that, I've had no responses. I also don't understand the council members who may not support a piece of legislation, but vote for it anyway. This hazardous pay for grocery workers that just passed this last week, it seemed to have come out of nowhere in about a two-week period from the time it was proposed until the time it was implemented. Why am I opposed to it? I'm opposed to anything that puts a burden immediately on employers. So a, a $4 raise per hour for hazardous pay during COVID is in some cases a 20 to 25% hourly increase. Well, wouldn't anybody like a 25% raise, of course. But how does the employer, and in this case, the large grocery chains, how do they plan for that? How do you put that into your budget? How do you put that into your pricing? when it's effective immediately. That's what I don't understand. And that's why I think it's important to ask if council members and candidates have experience in budgeting and meeting payroll. Because I'm not sure, uh, I don't believe that everybody understands the consequences of emotional and immediate legislation, such as that last piece I mentioned. Certainly doesn't. And it's uh, proof in the pudding. I go back to your effort that you made early on in Murray's administration to raise and phase in the $15 an hour wage in Seattle. And you pulled groups together and it was well thought out. And you came up with a proposal. I think as far as I look back in the last decade, that was one of the best processes I've observed. You know, I don't know why we don't think that for anybody. I agree. The outcome, I agree. It was painful at the time. (laughs) At the time, I'm thinking, holy smokes. 
It yeah. sure feels like a slow motion train wreck. Right. Uh, but it turned out to be mostly okay. And, you know, when I, I remember saying to someone uh, during that process who was talking about how they just couldn't see their way in their small business case to paying uh, up, you know, $15. And I remember saying to them, with this laid out plan, if you can't get from the present rate of 976 to $15 over seven years, uh, my observation is that you may have other issues with your business plan. Yeah, I kind of said that this morning to my wife. I'm going to tell her that, that you said that. Because um, Howard <laughs> said that, not me. So, and by the way, I, there you I, go. Yeah, uh, yeah. I want to be transparent too. And that is, I backed the districts. I really did. I spent some of my, of my own money to pay for commercials on radio because I felt so much in what you okay. said about the neighborhood. Big mistake. I regret it. Apparently well, as I sides. said, it didn't seem like it was a bad idea at the time. Uh, right. It didn't seem like right. I said I would, you know, and I didn't get a campaign going opposed to it because I wasn't sure that I could get people to buy into it. But now we know, and and I would do anything I could to go back, or at least to have more at large. I mean, district positions. I'd like to have at least more at large positions. That's Howard S. Wright, chairman of the Seattle Hospitality Group. Are you thinking about self-employment? Visit Amazon or order a book called Pre-Flight Checklist. Is self-employment for you? Pre-Flight addresses eight myths surrounding self-employment and includes a self-employment quiz. The higher you score, the higher your prospects for success. Visit Amazon Books and input Pre-Flight Checklist. That's Pre-Flight Checklist. Sam Kaplan is my guest, and he's the director of the Center of Excellence for Global Trade and Supply Change Management. And Sam has been my guest on this show several times. We've just had an exchange in administrations. President Biden will be coming up with some new policies, I'm sure, towards China. Anybody who's been listening to this show for any length of time knows that I have not been a fan of Trump, and that is putting it mildly. But to be fair, I wanted to ask a question. Was there anything that Trump did do right with respect to China? Those are great questions. Uh, um, Well, I mean, our our relationship is more uh, strident between the two countries than it was four years ago, uh, but it probably should be somewhat more strident. Uh, Maybe I'll answer the the last question a little bit more before the first ones. Um, I, I think the Trump and the Trump administration rightly elevated the issue of China uh, more than it had been by past administrations. But they did so in a, in a typically Trumpian ham-handed way and focusing on the wrong issues. Uh, the Trump administration focused really laser on the trade deficit rather than if you're going to focus on economic issues. It's, you know, China does have a closed market still. Um, they are practicing unfair economic and trade policies. But the trade deficit is a separate issue. You know, the trade deficit is neither good nor bad, depending on the circumstances. Uh, what, what the Trump administration should have focused on economically would have been the closed market, the stealing of intellectual property. And then beyond economics, China's become more authoritarian and started to become expansionist over the last decade. What do you think uh, the relationship will be going forward with the fact that Biden is now president? Biden can't go back to four years ago. He can't deal with China like it's 2016. It's a new world. 
America is much less uh, influential and powerful in the world due to the Trump administration. We've pulled out of uh, America, out of world leadership. We've uh, damaged different international institutions. We haven't paid attention to others. And the rest of the world has moved on. So there's been new alliances that have formed. Japan and Vietnam have been creating different alliances. Uh, India, Australia, and Japan have formed a supply chain alliance. Let me ask about uh, something else in your newsletter. And you talk about um, the death of globalization being greatly exaggerated. Could you expand on that? Yeah, I keep hearing, in fact, just over the weekend I was reading something where someone was saying, okay, you know, globalization is going to ebb and it's not coming back any soon. I just think that's completely wrong if you look at the data. Um, in my newsletter, I talk about the uh, trade went down earlier this year, but it went down more or less at the same rate as uh, GDP did. Uh, went a little bit more steep, but not too much more steep. And then it's come back even faster than GDP has grown in 2020. So you don't see the death of globalization if you look at international trade data. In addition to it, the vaccines have been uh, saw, have been created by different companies around the world, in Germany, in the UK, in America, and other places, and they've been created by mostly immigrants. So there is globalization right in the pandemic itself. This all originated in Wuhan, China, what we're going through now. Have they made moves that you're satisfied with, or are you still concerned that this could happen again? After huge initial missteps, from everything we can tell, has been doing a good job of containing the virus in China. But they have not been good about working with the rest of the world on trying to figure out the exact origins uh, and what to do going forward. They still have not let really an independent team independently investigate what happened in Wuhan and work with uh, um, with scientists there and around the world to deal with the virus. You know, there's, there's, we've got COVID-19, but there's also other coronaviruses that could develop. So it's really important that that work is allowed to be done. It is accurate that they contain the virus. At least we're not really seeing any evidence that they have not. But they're still not being open and not being cooperative in a way that would be helpful. Your latest book, Challenging China, what is that about? Uh, it's about how China has become more authoritarian and expansionist and what the U.S., along with other countries, uh, should be doing to address it. And really, I wrote it because I, uh, although China recently has become more uh, headline news since the pandemic. I, I was actually writing it before then. But it, I still see too many people who want to be extreme in one way or the other and how they deal with it. They either want to completely decouple or they just want to go the current route where we've not really been pushing back on China at all. Uh, so I thought it was important to have a book that would address how China's become a much bigger problem and the nature of that problem and really how we can be smart to deal with it. Is China really our biggest uh, nemesis going forward? Yeah, I, I think so, absolutely. Um, uh, you know, Russia is a problem, but they're, they're really a small economy now and have all sorts of problems. China is the second largest economy in the world. It is the, currently the most populous country in the world, although in the next five or ten years, India will become more populous. It has uh, technological abilities. It is tied into the world economy much more than, for example, the Soviet Union ever was. It has more trade partners than the United States. It has more influence than the Soviet Union did in that sense. And unfortunately, it's become more authoritarian uh, under President Xi, not necessarily trying to take over geographically, but trying to take over different institutions. They've been changing the UN to make it more 
um, uh, possible to have authoritarianism around the world spread, committing horrible human rights abuses, and having a closed economy, that would be one thing. But they're now trying to export their system in certain ways around the world, and that is not uh, something that I think we should allow happen. It's one of the things that we should be doing going forward is trying to support countries who push back against China. China's done that with Sweden when they uh, provided an award to a Swedish China, China Swede, who uh, was a writer, and they provided an award to him, but he was arrested by China, so he can't get the award. So the, uh, they, uh, China was doing all sorts of threats against Sweden for doing that, and they have done that with all sorts of countries. It's a way where the world needs to band together. So when China bans exports uh, into their country from certain countries to punish them, the rest of the world should, should help those countries financially and economically. Well, I guess that's uh, good news as far as dealing with authoritarian regimes like this, is that they just seem to fall on a sword all the time eventually, and they just can't get out of their own way. kind of crumbles. They can't sustain that. Well, that's one reason why I'm probably more optimistic than others is, is exactly that point. Uh, the, I mean, people have been worried recently because China, you know, a lot of people thought China was going to democratize or liberalize, just like Korea and Taiwan and other countries did as they economically grew. And China economically grew, but instead has become more authoritarian politically. Well, thank you, Sam. That's Sam Kaplan, and he's the director of the Center of Excellence for Global Trade and Supply Chain Management. He is the author of a new book called Challenging China. It's so new, it's actually not out yet. It'll be out sometime in March, but you can pre-order on Amazon or Barnes & Noble websites or many others as well. He also has a electronic newsletter that comes out roughly monthly, and it's called International Need to Know. If you'd like to get on that list, text me at 206-459-5536, and I'll let you know how you can make that connection. That's all the time we have for this edition to Voices of Experience. My thanks to Howard S. Wright and Sam Kaplan for sharing their wisdom and experience with us today. I suggest you take a look at Danny Westneat's column in the Sunday Seattle Times. He addressed the $4 hazard pay tax. I don't think there are many people in Seattle who are opposed to this tax. Seattle is made up of very compassionate people. We see that all the time. But like myself, many are opposed to the tax, but grocery stores whose margin of profit is so small as it is right now are being asked to pay the entire amount. There were no hearings, no public input on the hazard pay tax. And as Danny Westney points out, other states have implemented a hazard pay tax, but it's the state who subsidizes the employees, not the businesses, which is as it should be. And I also like what Howard had to say about the candidates for mayor of Seattle in the upcoming election. A real good criteria would be if they have any experience managing a $5 billion budget. Doesn't have to be private, as he said, corporate could be the public sector. Any comments about what you heard today, you can call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425-653-1166. That's 425-653-1166. Try to get it on the air if you keep it short. My name is Paul Casey, and along with Benny Mathers, thanks for listening. Quote of the week, strive not to be a success, but to be of value. Albert Einstein. Ah, what did he know? And finally, Always remember that experience is our best teacher.